Uh, the topic for this evening in our series of Heroes and Villains of Modern Jewish History is Yitzchak Shamir, but because it's election night, uh, I'm going to tweak the topic a little bit to be Yitzchak Shamir, George Bush, and the elections of 1992. Okay, so who's the villain? We'll find out so shortly. Yitzchak Shamir was born in Ruzhinoy, uh, under the, uh, the Russian Empire, which is today in Belarus, um, in 1915. Small little Jewish shtetl. And his childhood was one suffused in Yiddishkeit and Hebrew. His father was a prominent member of the local community and insisted that his children be given a Hebrew education. And I mean Hebrew, the language. He went to Tarbut schools despite... It not being uh, cheap, the tuition was expensive, and his father didn't have much money, but it was important to them. He moved to Bialystok for high school, where there was a Tarbut high school, from which he graduated, went off to university in Poland, but did not finish his studies. In 1935, at the age of 20 years old, he decided it's Eretz Yisrael for him. He's moving. The rest of his family didn't move. They all died. His mother, his father, two sisters. He was the only one to survive. Different uh, stories about how they were killed. The family was broken apart. Some were sent to the concentration camp. Some were shot. But it severely affected his uh, personality, his character, his attitude towards the Goyim in general, but specifically towards the Poles. He famously was quoted as saying that the Poles get their anti-Semitism in their mother's milk. A real hostil- hostility towards the, uh, the Gentiles of Eastern Europe. Even more so than Menachem Begin ever had. Much more so. In Eretz Yisrael, he joins the Irgun. 1937 joins the Irgun. In 1940 when there is a divide between David Raziel's Yirgun and Avraham Stern's breakaway faction, Yitzchak Shamir, whose name was Yitzchak Yezernitsky, uh, joins the Lechi, Lochamei Cherut Yisrael, or the Stern Gang. He's arrested in 1941 by the British as part of a roundup of the usual suspects of the underground, goes to jail at Mazra'a, which is in northern Israel, and he's able to escape in 1942 after about six months in confinement. Yair, or Avraham Stern, the leader of the Stern Gang, the Lechi, is assassinated by the British in 1942, and so now Lechi needs new leadership. A triumvirate was established of Shamir, Natan uh, Friedman Yellen, and Yisrael Shaib, or Yisrael Eldad. The three of them ran the Lechi for the next six years. But Shamir was the operations man. How did he get the name Shamir? What is a Shamir? What's the worm? Okay, so it cuts through the, through the stone. The idea was that he'd be powerful to cut through anything on the way to Jewish uh, independence. But he had a, a nom de guerre in the, in the underground, which was Michael, or Michael. He was named after Michael Collins of the Irish Revolution. He saw parallels between the Jewish attempt to throw off the yoke of British colonialism and the Irish attempt to do so 20 years earlier. So in the underground, 
He wears disguises, kind of like Begin did. Pretends to be a very orthodox Jew at one point, And is conducting operations. The most important one which he did, which we discussed last week to an extent, was the assassination of Lord Moyne in 1944, November of 1944. Shamir personally uh, selected the two assassins, Eliyahu Hakim and Eliyahu uh, Beitsur, who were executed by the by the Egyptians for the assassin by the British for the assassination, and uh, this for, for 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 this act, he would be held uh, in contempt by much of the uh, yeshuv, the mainstream yeshuv, and was a wanted man by the British with a tremendous bounty over his head. His picture appeared on all the uh, the leaflets that had the like the ten most wanted of the mandatory authorities, and he was a wa- he was a wanted man. He had to hide. Interestingly, the picture of him as a would be as a criminal as a wanted man resurfaced in 1991. Not that it had ever gone away. Everyone knew that there were copies of it available, but in 1991 at the Madrid conference, which we'll get to soon enough. The Syrian foreign minister, after having listened to Shamir uh, go on and on about how the Assad regime are a bunch of terrorists and butchers, uh, Farouk Shara, some of you may remember when he was uh, more important, he uh, produced this piece of paper with Shamir's picture on it and said this was when he was a terrorist, a wanted man. So uh, it, it, it haunted him to an extent for the rest of his life that he was regarded, branded a terrorist. Was he a traditionalist? No. Yitzchak Shamir was not a religious Jew. He was not hostile to religion. In fact, he uh, had a soft spot in his heart for, for tradition, but it played a limited role, if any, in his personal life. Whereas Begin was a man who mumbled Tfilin, uh, to tell him under his breath when the, when the, when the, pilot, when the, uh, the Air Force was on the way to bomb Osirak. So whereas Begin was in his heart a traditional Jew who had fervor and feelings, Shamir was not. He was not a, an avowed secularist, but he just was. It, Judaism didn't play much of a role for him. They also asked for kosher food. When it came to also true. Shamir, did. Uh, Shamir occasionally asked for kosher food just to stick it to the other side, <laughs> As a, 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 because he was the most belligerent of all the Israeli prime ministers by a long shot, much more so than Begin, and certainly much more so than Netanyahu. Sometimes he just did things to to put a knife on the other side. Okay. Um, yeah, but he was the prime minister, almost one of the longest in the history. Seven years, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten years. Seven years. One year, then another six years, broken up. So, during the uh, the period of the revolt, of the underground revolt, 44 to 48, Lehi wants to be involved as possible in attacking British installations and getting credit for ousting the British from Palestine. It's what Menachem Begin wants as the head of the Irgun. It's what everybody wants. Eventually, even the Haganah adopt that policy. So the last thing you want to be is out of action, on the disabled list, on injured reserve. Right. Who won? Clinton wins Delaware, D.C., Maryland, Massachusetts, Illinois, New Jersey, Rhode Island. Trump wins Oklahoma, West Virginia, Mississippi, and Tennessee. Okay, you got it right there. So... Uh, nobody wants to be out of action. But Shamir is arrested in 1946. 
He's arrested in 1946, about a month after the King David Hotel bombing, when a door-to-door search of the city of Tel Aviv was conducted, and almost no one could escape the, uh, the strong arm of the law. He is exiled to Eritrea in Africa, which was a British possession. He spends a year in uh, uncomfortable circumstances, but not horribly uncomfortable circumstances in Eritrea, together with many of the underground fighters who had been arrested. They arrested him, didn't they deny him for the first thing? No, 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 no. He was simply expelled from the country. He was not tried for for the assassination in Egypt. That's another country. It's not their their, uh, jurisdiction. He sent that... So he's in Eritrea. He's not tortured or anything like that. He's just out of action. But for an underground fighter, even worse than being tortured is being out of action. He wants to get back on the playing field. So in 1947, they hatch a plot for him to escape in very tight quarters in a a secret compartment in the back of an oil tanker, which he has to be there for three days without food or water and without much fresh air, together with another person. Um, But he makes it to Djibouti. He was short, so he didn't take up much space. You're right. Uh, it's true. He didn't take up much space. So he makes it to, to the French possession of Djibouti, and the French, uh, at first, don't know what to do with him, but then grant him asylum, political asylum. He's in France in 1947, early 48, and he is able to sneak into Eretz Yisrael uh, a week after the Declaration of Independence in May of 48. Okay. What happens next? So last week, if you remember, after the declaration of statehood, there's a big problem for the underground fighters. What do they do now? There's an official government, there's an army, there's the IDF, and the uh, continued existence of private militias is not something that a, a functioning state can tolerate. And that's what led to the Altalena episode, which had nothing to do with Shamir. It was an Irgun matter, not a Lehi matter. So Lehi dissolves itself on May 29th, everywhere except for Jerusalem, why? Because as I said last week, Jerusalem is not part of the state of Israel, at least not in 1948, because the partition plan called it a corpus separatum, a separate entity under international auspices. So Lehi is still fighting, t- together with the Irgun, uh, for Jewish control of the city and to create a, a connection between the coastal plain and the Jewish section of Yerushalayim. Continuing to operate as an underground entity in Jerusalem, their last great stand was the assassination of Folk Bernadotte, who was the UN mediator. Why did they kill him? So, the answer is simply this. Bernadotte was not an anti-Semite. Far from it. Bernadotte, in fact, saved Jewish lives during the war um, in his capacity with the Red Cross. So, he was a a legitimate humanitarian who meant well, but his political solution to the uh, Arab-Jewish conflict was to give the store to the Arabs, and that the Jewish state would be uh, tiny, certainly not a viable one, and without Jerusalem at all. It would go to the Arabs, not even internationalized. So the Lehi, fearing the worst, says, this guy's got to die. And a a team of hitmen, led by Yehoshua Cohen, uh, ambushes his car, just south of the old city, and kills him. Uh, who, who ordered this assassination? So there were times when Shamir would deny his involvement. For several decades, he refused to acknowledge the truth. 
And even in his uh, autobiography that he wrote in the 1990s, after he was out of office, he still did not really admit to direct personal involvement in the decision. But other evidence proves that it was him. That as the, the remaining operations head of Lech, he, he ordered the assassination, but they strategically uh, um, had a group, a phantom group, a non-existent uh, front group called the, the, fa- the, the Fatherland Front, claim responsibility so as to deflect attention away from Lachi. But we know it was them. The irony of it is that Bernadotte was assassinated by Yoshua Cohen. Yoshua Cohen went on to found Kibbutz Stei Boker, which is Ben-Gurion's home. And Yoshua Cohen and Ben-Gurion were best friends the last ten years of Ben-Gurion's life. They used to take walks together every morning around the Kibbutz. So, in a bizarre twist of things, Ben-Gurion lived the, 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 you know, his end of days among you know, lechi partisans, who he otherwise would have hated. Did he know the yes, he knew, he certainly knew. Anyone who claims he didn't know is, is, is telling stories. All right. All right. That was the end of lechi. After the assassination of Bernadotte, the underground ceases to exist, everyone comes out of hiding, and Shamir writes in his, in his autobiography that they had a parade in Tel Aviv in October of 48, uh, just as like one last hurrah for the underground. And he said it was amazing because people met each other for the first time. Now, what do you mean they met each other for the first time? They were, they were collaborating for the last four years. Well, the answer is you didn't necessarily know what someone looked like. Or, even if you knew what they looked like, you didn't know their real name. So they exchanged phone numbers and real names so that they could go you know, Facebook friend each other later in life. But that in the underground, people knew each other by a phony name. All right. The, what, what happened afterwards? Well, we know that when it came to Menachem Begin, his decision was to go into politics. And the Yagun became Cherut, which became a significant party in the state of Israel, the perpetual minority uh, and opposition for 29 years, but a significant party in, in Israeli political life. What about the Lehi? So the answer is that they established the Fighters List, which ran in the 1949 elections, really just for one purpose only, because... And Natan Friedman Yellen was in jail. Ben-Gurion had jailed a, a significant number of underground right-wing fighters. And the theory was if you run for office and get elected, the, government, the, the head of state will have to give you a pardon so you can take your seat in the parliament. And that's exactly what happened. No, no, he was jailed earlier. Um, but uh, the fighters list won only one seat, so Shamir did not go into the Knesset, but, uh, but Yellen was in the Knesset for one term, and then he became a communist later in life. Sometimes things work out really weird that the, the, head, of, the head of Lehi in the fighters list becomes a, a far left-winger. Um, so Shamir says in, uh, uh, very openly, he was not disappointed in the, the absence of political success for the Lehi. It was over, they fought for freedom, freedom had been secured. So what does he do with himself? He has a family. He's got a wife. He married uh, Shulamit, who came from Bulgaria in 1940. Uh, they got married during the years of the underground and even had children uh, while uh, the revolt was ongoing. And he, Yitzchak Shamir did not get to see his oldest child uh, in the early years because he was in, uh, in jail in, in, in East Africa. Yes, he's currently a member of Knesset. Yair Shamir, who is a member of... Uh, uh, he is a member of the, uh, the Avigdor Lieberman party, the Israel Beitenu. So, uh, he goes into business to earn a living. But he's not a great businessman. 
So from 1951 to 1955, he's in private industry without much success. 1955, he decides to go back into public service. He joins the Mossad, which you could argue is a very good fit for him. After all, the man had run an underground organization, he's, a, he's accustomed to clandestine activities. Um, this is a good fit. What's the problem, though? The problem is that the Mossad, of all parts of the Israeli bureaucracy, is beholden to the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is the minister responsible for uh, espionage. And Isser Harel is the head of the Mossad, the henchmen of David Ben-Gurion. Are they going to look kindly upon uh, former adversaries and rivals of the Haganah and the Mapai to uh, hold sensitive positions in uh, espionage or you know, clandestine activities? Maybe yes, maybe no, but it sounds like no. But it turned out that the purges, the political purges of the late 40s, early 50s were over, and now the bureaucracy really was looking for competent individuals and will let bygones be bygones. The fact that you were once an enemy of the Haganah does, doesn't matter anymore. So Harel has a sit-down meeting with Shamir. They clear the air. Everyone agrees that we're all in this for the state of Israel, for the good of the Jewish people, and Shamir joins the team. He spends the next 10 years in the Mossad. Uh, what was his most important um, responsibility? Well, it's hard to know because these are the sorts of things that the historians can't write about because the records are sealed. But the one thing that we're pretty sure about is that Shamir was the man responsible for Operation Damocles. Operation Damocles was uh, the Mossad's efforts to curb Egyptian rocket pro- the Egyptian rocket program, which was undertaken by ex-Nazi scientists. So the assassination of, or attempted assassination of, various uh, West German uh, uh, scientists and uh, technology uh, officials who were operating both in Germany and in Egypt was the Mossad's doing. This was exposed in 1963, and Isser Harel had to resign from the, as the head of the Mossad. Ben-Gurion also would resign that same year, and Shamir would resign from the, uh, from the Mossad two years later in a shake-up um, because this operation was seen to give Israel a bad name. And some of the military guys said that it was either unsuccessful or unnecessary, that the Egyptian rocket program had not advanced that far, that it was, it was, it was needed to commit acts of terrorism to sabotage it. Okay. So out of the, the Mossad, what does Shamir do next? In 1969... He joins the Khairut party and looks to enter a life of politics. He's elected to the Knesset for the first time in 1973, which was the last time that the Likud lost. And he's a, he's a relatively senior member in, in terms of uh, chronology of the party, although he's a newcomer to the party. And again, there had to be a bit of a heart-to-heart with Menachem Begin, because here, the head of, uh, the, of the Yirgun and the head of Lehi, who did not always see eye to eye, are coming together to join forces in a political conglomerate known as Likud. 1977, Likud wins. The Mahapach, the, the, the upheaval, the turnover. What happens to Shamir? He becomes Speaker of the Knesset. As Speaker of the Knesset, he's a pretty important person now. The most significant thing that he had to do as Speaker of the Knesset, was to oversee whose speech in the Knesset? Which, which particular person? 
Sadat. No, Anwar Sadat, correct. November 9th, 1977, Anwar Sadat shows up in Israel and gives a speech in Arabic to the Knesset. So Shamir has to bang the gavel and convene the, uh, the meeting and sit there and smile. smile. Or if not smile, at least not make faces. What was Shamir's attitude towards the, the Camp David Accords and the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty of 1979? So he's in a ticklish position because on the one hand, he's towards the top of the Likud ticket. Menachem Begin, as the head of the Likud party, uh, is putting forth this agreement as uh, something that Likud should be in support of. On the other hand, as a hardline right-winger who doesn't believe in compromising te- on matters of territory, Shamir is personally opposed. So does he vote yes or does he vote no? no. Abstain. So he abstains on the 78 uh, Camp David and the 79 final version of the treaty. He can't vote no because that'll cost him politically. He'll be out of uh, the Speaker's position. He'll have no future uh, in, the, in, a, in a Likud cabinet. So he takes a middle ground of not yes, not no, just I'm absent. Okay. In 1980, Shamir becomes foreign minister. So he's quickly rising even further and further up the ladder. How did that happen? Well, if you remember from last week, when Begin was elected, he pulled a surprise move and he made Moshe Dayan the foreign minister, despite the fact that Moshe Dayan was a member of the Labor Party. And it's unheard of in Israel to take someone of, a, of the other competing party and put them in your cabinet. Wasn't Moshe Dayan part of Rafi? So Moshe Dayan was part of Rafi, but Rafi, but Rafi ceased to exist in 1968. And so it folded back into the alignment of which Dayan was a prominent member. Uh, but he served as foreign minister, and he was the, the lead negotiator who, according to both Sadat and Carter, if not for Moshe Dayan, there wouldn't have been a Camp David Accords, because Begin was too tough, too, too much of a, an, an uncompromising character. Dayan made it all possible. But Dayan quit. Why did he quit? Because the Camp David Accords had two parts. One peace with Egypt, give away the Sinai. The other was an arrangement for the Palestinian Arabs of the West Bank and Gaza to have autonomy over a five-year stretch, followed by some kind of final status arrangement. Begin didn't want that as part of the Accords, but the only way he could get Sadat to sign was if there was some uh, recognition of the Palestinian cause. So, from a right-winger's point of view, the appearance of the Palestinian uh, component to the Camp David Accords was really anathema. Yet later, we'll see, they took advantage of it as a way of precluding the PLO. So sometimes your, your worst nightmare becomes the best thing ever. In any event, the foreign minister deals with foreign affairs. Is the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians a matter of foreign affairs? No. Who's, a show of hands, who says yes? A show of hands, who says no? Okay, so it's whatever you want to make it, exactly. If you're a right-winger who feels that uh, Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, the greater Israel, is Israel, without any artificial distinctions of green lines, then it's an internal matter not to be dealt with by the Foreign Affairs Ministry and not to be tinkered with by outside actors like the United States. That was the Shamir position all along. Whereas Dayan felt Israel ends at the border wherever the border might be. And if the Palestinians are on the other side of the border, then I, as the, defense, as the foreign minister, should be negotiating the arrangement with the Palestinians. 
the fact that Begin didn't give him did, didn't give him that responsibility, said he said, "I'm out of here. I'm done." Which border? Sixty-seven. Whatever their border will end up being, oh. the Palestinians are going to be on the other side of it. So Dayan was of the opinion the foreign ministry should be dealing with it. So he's out. Shamir is in. Shamir becomes known as Mr. No. Whatever the question, no. The answer is always no. An uncompromising character. Uh, with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1981, so things improved in that you no longer had to deal with Zbigniew Brzezinski and Jimmy Carter. Who came on the scene? Al Haig who was seen as the most friendly uh, Secretary of State to Israel in the history of the American-Israeli relationship. And James Baker also. Okay. Well, James Baker was the, was, was the chief of staff. But Haig was military. So, hey, but he was Secretary of State. No, but yeah. he had military. Right, right. So, but but he, I would think a relationship between a military man and the Israeli military would have been more uh, conducive for cooperation. It, it, it certainly was. So, th- so from the Begin point of view, Begin Shamir, they liked Haig. When he was uh, replaced in favor of George Shultz, there were serious concerns that George Shultz would be pro-Arab because he had been the head of Bechtel, which is a contracting company with a lot of business in Saudi Arabia. But as it turned out, Shultz was very, very friendly to Israel and even had a cordial relationship with Shamir, despite Shamir's uh, reputation for being Mr. No. Somehow they, they got along which was much better than the relationship with Caspar Weinberger, which was a disaster, and led to problems with Jonathan Pollard. Okay. So, Shamir's job in 80, 81, 82, 83, so long as Begin was still Prime Minister, was to make sure that whatever aggressive actions Israel took in the region did not give Israel a horrible reputation. It was no easy task because of two major concerns. One was the bombing of the nuclear reactor in Iraq, for which Israel was horribly condemned. And the second was the invasion of Lebanon in 1982, for which Israel was horribly condemned, especially after the Sabah Shatila massacres in September. So he didn't have an easy time of it, trying to uh, maintain Israel's image abroad. And he really was the wrong man for the job. The shock of all shocks except it was no shock at all, was when Begin resigned. Begin had had enough. By September of 83, he was a shell of himself. He was gaunt. He was losing his marbles, probably. I mean, he was not the same man he had been a few years earlier. Who's going to replace him? There were several possibilities. One was, of course, Shamir, who, as foreign minister, is up there towards the top of the cabinet. The other option was David Levy. The other option was Azar Weitzman. But... Uh, Levy was a little too young and too ambitious. And sometimes when you're young and ambitious, you don't get what you want. And he never got what he wanted. He re- eventually became foreign minister, but never got all the way to the top. And he always complained bitterly that it was because of his Sephardic Moroccan background that they, 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 they held him down, which is not, it was not true at all. It was just because he was a political lightweight. And, and Weitzman also, in many ways, was a political lightweight and wasn't up to the challenge. And also would then sh- uh, sh- uh, switch teams and join labor and become president, going the labor route. So Shamir was, was chosen as the successor uh, to Begin. His cabinet is the same as Begin's was, other than making himself prime minister. There wasn't much of a shake-up. And he has a year left till the elections, from fall of 83 till the fall of 84. 
In 84, what's on the agenda? Well, pulling out of Lebanon somehow, some way, because the army was still with a heavy presence, not just in the security zone, which they'd established in 1985 and last until 2000, but in all of southern Lebanon, the IDF was roaming around and getting shot at. Hyperinflation was a disaster. The economy was, was not doing well at all. And there were social uh, issues between the various groups that were was coming to the fore politically. So who's going to win? Likud, led by Yitzhak Shamir, or Labor, the alignment led once again by Shimon Peres. As a rule, Peres doesn't win. That's the rule. <laughs> Except this time, he at least drew, drew it to a tie. So, uh, the tie in the 1984 elections produced an odd situation. Neither party could form a coalition of 61 members of the Knesset, because it really was that close on the left-right split. So they formed a rotation agreement, whereby Perez would become prime minister from October of 84 through October of 86, followed by Shamir being prime minister from October of 86 to October of 88. All that time, Yitzhak Rabin would be the defense minister, and the one who isn't prime minister would be the foreign minister. So as it turned out, Shamir actually was foreign minister from 1980 all the way through 86, because he held it when Begin was prime minister, he held the position for himself while he was also prime minister, and then he held it when Perez was in office. So for six years, he was the foreign minister, despite being Mr. No and having a horrible reputation abroad. Um, what happened during this time? The pullout from Lebanon occurred in 85 under Perez's watch. Inflation was brought under reasonable control also while Perez was prime minister. And the Pollard situation got out of hand. No, 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 no. The, uh, the finance minister at that time was, I think, Yitzhak Modai. He, uh, Netanyahu was ambassador to the United Nations from 1984 to 1988. Then he was deputy foreign minister from 88 to 92. Okay, so things are happening while Perez is prime minister. But there isn't much um, movement on the Palestinian front. Not much is happening. When Shamir takes over again in 86, that doesn't stop Perez from advancing the ball with the Palestinians, or with the Arabs more generally. And this is a big problem that uh, the national unity government faces. The prime minister is supposed to be the boss and dictating policy. The foreign minister, who is at that point number two, should not be conducting an independent uh, diplomatic um, scheme. And yet Perez did. Perez had a habit of always operating without the agreement of his, bo his immediate boss. He would do the same thing with Robin in 92, 93. And so in 1987, the London agreement is reached between King Hussein and Shimon Peres for uh, a return of significant parts of the West Bank to Jordan or to a Palestinian entity which is overseen by Jordan. The exact details were never hashed out. And in fact, when the scheme was exposed, Peres had to show a copy of it to Shamir and Shamir said, oh, so give me the piece of paper, I want to review it. And he said, I'm not going to give you the piece of paper, because I know that if I give it to you, your office will leak it to the press. 
and we have to make it seem as though the Americans came up with this. So that was the extent of the relationship between Perez and Shamir. There's supposed to be national unity, there's no unity. All right. The big uh, w- concern, huh? You couldn't fire him. To fire him would have meant going to elections, uh, which is something that neither side was willing to do, certainly not Shamir, because Perez already had his 25 months at the helm. For Shamir to then fire him and go to elections means that he doesn't get his 25 months at the helm. So everybody's looking out for, I want my, the, to maximize the number of days I hold the prime ministership. Right. Shamir's biggest concern was that there'd be an international conference for peace. Why was he so worried about that? Because he doesn't want to be ganged up upon by the Europeans, the 21 Arab states, and the Americans to have to cough up the territories. It's like the France uh, 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 conference they want to do now. Right. Okay, so th- 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 there's, there's a, a traditional concern by the Israeli right that if there are too many actors involved, it's bad for Israel. That bilateral negotiations are the best way because they're in private and Israel's the stronger party which it is, it holds all the cards. So, he pushes off this idea, and it gets him in trouble with the, um, with the Reagan administration, which is gunning for an international conference. The other concern was the fate of the PLO. Shamir says, no negotiations with the PLO under any circumstance. They're a terrorist organization, they want to destroy Israel. But Reagan is interested, potentially, in recognizing the PLO as the legitimate representatives of the Palestinian people. The United Nations did that in 1974 at Rabat. Uh, in summer of 88, it was impressed upon Arafat by Abu Mazen that if he says the right things in a public speech of renouncing violence, he'll get American recognition. So he does, in December of 88, at a big speech in Geneva... And the Americans say, it wasn't good enough. Speech wasn't good enough. You, didn't, you weren't explicit enough in your renunciation of violence. So the next morning there's another press conference in which he's more explicit, at which point the Reagan administration recognizes the PLO. It was his ba- basically his last action in foreign affairs. When that happened, combined with King Hussein of Jordan renouncing all claims to the West Bank, the West Bank is now the property of the PLO in the eyes of the international community. So Israel is still very much in control, but international community sees it as the, the, the fiefdom of the PLO. What else is a factor? The Intifada breaks out on December 9th, 1987, with a car accident in Gaza. At first it's a popular uprising, but then it's uh, hijacked by uh, the PLO's uh, political uh, committee, and they take over the, condu- the running of the Intifada. So all this is in the background as Israel goes to the polls again in 1988. Once again, it's very close. Likud wins by one vote, 40 to 39. So Shamir once again has defeated Shimon Peres. But, it's still very close. So what do you do? Shamir can't form a right-wing government by himself. He needs once again national unity. But this time, because he won, he was the outright winner, he's the prime minister, and... Shimon Peres doesn't get a rotation play. Shimon Peres has to satisfy himself being the, the treasury minister, foreign minister, the, uh, the finance minister, finance minister. And the foreign ministry stays in the hands of Likud, goes to Moshe Aaron's. Robin re- remains the, the defense minister the whole time. 
this government is not a good government. Everyone hates each other's guts. Each one has a different agenda. Shamir is no, no, no. Build more settlements, more settlements, more settlements. Perez is le- moving very far to the left. And Rabin is just basically crushing skulls in the West Bank with batons. So something's going to have to give here. This government can't last forever. Trying, trying to, to uh, give Israel a better name in the United States, because as an American, Arendt w- w- was, was able to cultivate good relationships with the Pentagon and the, uh, the State Department, as, as good as could be expected, given that he's a right-wing Zionist. Okay? And the government's going to fall eventually. It does in 1990. And Peres tries to pull a stinking maneuver, as it's known in Israel, a stinking maneuver. He tries to use the Haredi parties to break from their traditional alliance with the Likud and go with him to form the narrowest of, of left-wing uh, uh, Haredi uh, coalitions. It fails. And although Shas was heavily involved in this stinking maneuver, Aryeh Deri at the center of it, eventually it, it collapses and Shamir is able to, to um, regain his composure and once again form a right-wing government. Not a national unity, a firm right-wing government, hard right government of uh, se- pro-settlement. That's what happens from 1990 to 1992. But those were critical years for the state of Israel. Very critical years. Now we get to the issue of elections and George Bush and uh, the Gulf War. So on August 2nd, 1990, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait and you have Operation Desert Shield followed by Operation Desert Storm. When Desert Storm begins in January, January 17, 1991, I remember it very well. I was at the Concord Hotel. It was a Saturday night. The Giants played the 49ers, and Matt Barr kicked a 49-yard field goal to get the Giants to the Super Bowl. It was a holy day, I remember. And the Gulf War started. I was 10 years old. No, no, that was the war that came to an end then. But this is January 91. So the Scud missiles are going to fly. Patriot batteries in Israel... Everyone is led to believe that the Patriot batteries did a wonderful job. In fact, in hindsight, we're told that they did nothing. In fact, they made even more damage than, than they prevented. But the science was, was primitive at that time compared to the Iron Dome we have today. Okay. Shamir's in a bind. Does he fight, does he fight back against Iraq or not? He made a deal with, with, with Bush that Israel would not respond so long as the casualty count, uh, the casualty count was low and there were no non-conventional uh, weapons used which in the end is what happened. Only one person was killed by the Scuds, and there were no non-conventional weapons. So Israel refrains from involvement, which would have, if Israel had gotten involved, destroyed the 36-nation coalition. So Shamir's perspective is, well, we did the Americans a favor. What are they going to do for us? What are they going to do for us? The American perspective is, we just won a great war, and the Soviet Union is in its uh, death throes, so we're on top of the world. We can boss around anyone we want. And that's the problem in 1991. So what, what the Bush administration wants is a peace conference, the kind of which Shamir could agree to, potentially, in that it wasn't going to be a conference which was per, to produce an agreement, but rather a photo op which would be followed by bilateral and multilateral discussions. And Shamir, as much as he was a naysayer, he could agree potentially with that, but on one condition, that the PLO not be there. And that if there is Palestinian representation, 
it's at best in conjunction with the Jordanian delegation, because Shamir is trying to deny the existence of a Palestinian people, basically, um, and just lump it all together as Jordanian. So that's one machlokis, which will eventually be resolved. The other is issues of loan guarantees. So you probably remember, it's been 25 years, something about loan guarantees. What was really going on then? The Russian Aliyah was very close to the heart of Yitzhak Shamir. For many, many decades, he had been at the forefront, sometimes uh, you know, in, a, in a secretive way, but other times in a very open way, pushing for uh, the free flow of Jewish emigrants from Eastern Europe, from Soviet bloc countries. And as foreign minister, he made it uh, an important component of his uh, work. Starting in 1989, there basically was the free flow of emigrants from the Soviet bloc. And, moreover, Shamir did something that you might disagree with, even if you're a right-wing Zionist. He he encouraged the United States of America to rescind the, the refugee status of Russian Jews on the grounds that they're not refugees since they have somewhere to go uh, that, that will openly welcome them, namely the state of Israel. Begin had never adopted that approach. He said, I, as a, as a Jewish person who, you know, who survived the, the Holocaust, can't uh, tell my fellow Jews where they should or shouldn't go. I want them to go to Israel, but I can't close the door to another place uh, for them. Whereas Shamir was a tougher cookie than that. He, he said, I want them to come to Israel and I'll put roadblocks for them to go to Canada or the U.S. or wherever. I want them in Israel. And so 400,000 uh, Soviet Jews came to Israel from between 1989 and 1992. A tremendous increase in the population, a 10% increase of a nation with 4 million people. So the cost of, of, of integrating them into society was tremendous. Housing, health care, Issues with employment because a lot of these people were uh, educated but they couldn't find jobs suitable for their experience. Okay, all these were real serious problems and required money to solve. So the United States was, was, at, was uh, petitioned for $10 billion of loan guarantees, which means that Israel would take out loans in the commercial marketplace on Wall Street or wherever and the United States would be like a co-signer on the loan that in case Israel defaulted, the U.S. would pay. Um, the Bush administration was reluctant to allow this. This is over and above the $3 billion in actual aid. The Senate and the House were firmly pro-Israel, especially the Democrat side of the aisle. If you go through the roster of names who have been around in Congress for, the, for, for 30 years, some names who today are not always so friendly to Israel, were back then, especially on the left side of the aisle, very pro-Israel. Okay? And they didn't want to hear that the government, the administration, was putting up any opposition to this loan guarantees. In September, Bush announces a 120-day delay in the loan guarantee. Four-month delay. Why? So he says in a press conference that if the United States were to give $10 billion loan guarantee to Israel shortly before the peace conference, it could no longer be seen as an impartial broker of peace. It would be seen by the Arab side as too closely aligned with Israel. All right. That didn't go over well. Not with American Jewry, and not with both houses of Congress, where it was was, uh, vigorously argued 
that a humanitarian matter like this should not get caught up in politics. The other issue was, Bush was firmly against the, uh, the construction of West Bank settlements. Especially James Baker was against it. So, the threat was, unless you agree to the, halt of, uh, the halting of new construction in the settlements, you're not going to get the money. And Shamir didn't like that in the least. Because Shamir's opinion was, it's his job, as the leader of Am Yisrael, to uh, produce the ingathering of the exiles and the building up of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, the full Eretz Yisrael. And he's not going to allow some American president to stop him from that sacred task. What's the end result? So a thousand lobbyists converge on, on, uh, on Capitol Hill, September 12, 1991. And they're hitting every single member of the House, every single member of the Senate, APAC and other organizations. So Bush gets in front of the cameras while the, the, the lobbyists are in the building and announces that it's a thousand to one. Just he's a, a lonely little guy, him, President Bush, against these thousand lobbyists. It was the most uh, egregious example of, uh, I, I don't know if you want to call it anti-Jewish or anti-Israel sentiment expressed uh, by an American president. Now, Just wait. Okay, all right, well, all right. this really cost him in the 1992 elections. Jews vote Democrat, but not always, not, and not entirely. In 1988, 35% of the Jewish vote went to Bush. 65 went to Dukakis. In 1992, as a punishment for this and other things, Bush got 12% of the Jewish vote. Very, very low. Historically low. By the way, who was the last Republican to carry the Jewish vote? Warren Harding, 1920. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know who he was. Yeah. Okay. So... Okay, so Baker gives out the 202 number and says if Israel's interested in peace, they can call the White House. But actually, that was in the spring of 92. It was a few months later. So in, in, in October, the Madrid conference happens. And the foreign ministers all show up of all the Arab countries. Shamir decided he's going to show up as prime minister. Even though none of the other prime ministers were there, he wanted to st- stare them in the eye, and he wanted to speak to Gorbachev and to Bush and be directly involved to show Israel's commitment to this effort. Was it a bluff? You could argue yes. You could argue that the whole thing was a bluff. But he took the opportunity of the Madrid conference to give a 45-minute lecture about how the Jewish people are connected to Eretz Yisrael and how the Arab states are all a bunch of uh, vicious tyrannies. And he said it to their faces. They didn't particularly like that. Um, But the Madrid conference was a success, as far as Israel was concerned, in two very important ways. One... Just going there meant that they were cooperative. And being seen as cooperative is better than being seen as recalcitrant or obstinate. The other way was it led to bilateral negotiations with the various Arab states and with the Palestinians and excluded the PLO, which had been Shamir's intention the whole time. Okay. So, things are moving forward, but they get bogged down. No progress is really made in the bilateral talks. That's when Baker's famously said, or was quoted by the New York Post as saying, even if he never did say it, four-letter word, the Jews. Okay? He, President Bush denied that Baker actually said it. And no one heard him. It's just uh, 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 attributed to him by a newspaper. So we don't know. But that was his sentiment. 
Baker was hostile to Israel. No doubt about it. Much more so than the president. The president was pro-Israel, but pro-Israel within the Green Line, not beyond the Green Line. Okay. Which leads us to the 1992 elections in Israel. The government collapsed, as it was expected to collapse. And the elections were pushed uh, forward from November of 92 to June of 92. And Likud lost. And Shamir was no longer prime minister. Why did this happen? So tonight is an election night. You hear all sorts of commentary. Let me give you the commentary in the 92 elections. What the final vote was, Labor 44, Likud 32, Meretz 12, Tzomet 8, Shah 6, Maftal 6, the Arabs 5, Aguda 4, Moledet 3, and that's it. Okay. Now what does that all add up to? It adds up to Labor and Meretz being 56 together. The Arabs have five. Are the Arabs in the government? Never, never, ever, ever in the history of the State of Israel have the Arab parties been in the government. But that doesn't stop them from supporting a minority coalition. So the Arabs have five and Meretz and and Labor have uh, 56. That's 61, which means it's impossible for there to be a right-wing government. It cannot happen. Even if every other party, extreme right, and all the religious parties joined forces with Likud, they can't form a government. So that means labor wins. But what kind of a government could they form? In the end, it was labor and merit equals 56, and Shas plus 6 equals 62, with the silent support of the five Arabs equals 67, which was a firm enough government to be able to pass the Oslo Accords. Oslo 1 and Oslo 2. All right? So Shas, we say, sold out. Yitzhak Rabin. So what happened in this election? Why did the Likud lose? So, a few, a few reasons. First of all, it must be said that this was not a mahpach. It was not 1977 all over again. When, shock of all shocks, the Likud comes to power, Menachem Begin comes to power after 30 years in the, in the wilderness. Because, if you look at the numbers, there were 59 members of Knesset from either a right-wing party or an orthodox party. Down only... Uh, six seats from 65, 65 to 59. There were 49 uh, seats for right-wing parties, if you include the Mafdal as a right-wing party, which by 1992 it was. Remember, historically, the, the National Religious Party was a moderate or left-of-center party politically. It was orthodox, but it was left politically. By 92, that has changed. The settlers hijacked the party, and it became a far-right party. Okay, so 49 down from, 50, from, uh, from 59, which is not a tremendous, tremendous drop-off. And the sum total of all votes, there were actually 7,000 more votes for the right than there were for the left. So what happened that the right lost if they got more votes? Was it rigged, like Donald Trump would say? <laughs> what was it? So the answer is it was a little rigged. It was. But if, if for, in legal ways. I'll explain how. Okay. Now, on the surface of it, 92 was not a year for the, the, the right wing to lose, any more so than 81 or 84 or 88. In 81, okay, uh, there was r- high inflation and there was social unrest. In 84, there was a fiasco of Lebanon. In 88, the Intifada was raging. So on all those occasions, if you were a centrist voter, you had reason maybe to not vote for Likud. And they could have lost. And Shimon Peres could have been prime minister in his own right. Yet that, none of that ever happened. The, the, the right wing always either tied or won. So in 92, were things so disastrous that the Likud should lose? After all, there, there was the successful Madrid conference. Okay, Inflation was down. 
Russian Jews had made Aliyah successfully. Things were looking up in 1992. Life was a little bit better in Israel. Why should the governing party, which had survived a lot worse, suddenly take a tumble? Okay. Um, And furthermore, the alliance between the right wing and the orthodox parties was fairly solid, making it very difficult for the left to crack through. So what happened? Well, first of all, what was the nature of the campaign? It was the exact opposite of the, ni- of the 2016 American campaign. If this is the most boisterous and inflammatory campaign you've ever remembered, 92 in Israel was the quietest campaign ever. And the reason it was so quiet is because Yitzhak Shamir and Yitzhak Rabin didn't hate each other. They actually liked each other. In fact, Yitzhak Rabin was defense minister for six straight years throughout all the 80s when, Sh- when Perez and Shamir were at each other's throats alternating as prime minister... The one solid, firm uh, part of that government was Rabin was the defense minister, crushing the Intifada. Okay, Shamir respected Rabin's military credentials and his competence as a defense minister, and Rabin respected Shamir as a a right-wing ideologue who was preserving Eretz Israel. Uh, They didn't hate each other, therefore it wasn't a vitriolic campaign. Okay, the dovish wing of the Labor Party was concealed. They kept Yossi Balin in the closet. All right, and n- nobody should know from him uh, uh, because the public was centrist at that point. So by having the left side of the aisle appear more centrist and, and quieting down their more uh, boisterous ranks, that did them a big favor. Also, the Likud was lulled into a, a feeling of complacency, like the whole army was before the Yom Kippur War, you know, a, a feeling of complacency, like nothing could possibly go wrong. So Likud, having 15 years in power, they said, what could go wrong? We're always going to win. And they, just, they ran a half-baked campaign and lost. Um, also, reports of mismanagement and malfeasance and corruption came out in April just before the election. And that cost them among those handful of voters who care about public integrity. Um, also, some, some voters just wanted the party in power to be out of power. You're in power too long. Do we need a change? Not a drastic change, but just a change. Furthermore, there were those who felt that domestic issues had been ignored by Shamir, like the employment, the economy, uh, housing issues within the Green Line, because his focus was almost exclusively on the settlement enterprise. That instead of uh, focusing on real priorities, they were building Efrat and Sagot and Kedumim or whatever. Um, also some voters left the Likud for labor not because they had a change of heart about withdrawal from territories but simply because they thought that investment was, um, in the territories was coming at their expense like if you live in the development towns if you're living in uh, you know, somewhere in the Negev or some uh, you know, forgotten place in, the, in northern Galilee and money should be going to build up infrastructure in your city, but it's going instead to build an isolated outpost near Janin, you're going to be angry, and you'll vote for another party. Okay. So th- those were factors in the campaign. But then there were structural factors. One was vote-sharing agreements. In America, we don't have this, because we don't have a parliament. But vote-sharing agreements means that when the, the Knesset is divided up into 120 seats, so X number of votes gets you one seat. What happens if you have surplus votes beyond the number you're going to get? Let's say it takes 30,000 votes to get one seat. And you got 94,000 votes. You're going to get three seats. What happens to the extra 4,000 votes? Do they go in the garbage? So the answer is, 
that you can have an arrangement whereby your another party that is that is like-minded can pick up your extra votes to get over the, the hurdle for one more Knesset seat. Merits and Labor had a, a cooperative agreement that got them an extra two seats. Uh, the other factor was the threshold. Oh, the good old threshold. Nowadays, the threshold is what, like 4%, I think, in Israel. Uh, but back then, it was 1.1%. It was elevated to 1.5%, which means you can no longer have a one-seat party. You had to have a two-seat party. That hurt all the little guys. There were 26 parties running. Only 10 made it. So 16 parties didn't make it. You know, the, the rent was too damn high. didn't make it. And who had these kind of parties? The pot smokers and the crazy right-wingers. So Techiyah, which used to have three seats, Geula Kohn's party got zero. But 26,000 votes were wasted. Moshe Levinger of Hebron, okay, also had a party, 5,000 seat votes wasted. Those extra votes could have been another two seats. Another two seats would have meant the right wing would have won the, the election. So the, the, the foolishness of these minor uh, fringe uh, groups that had their own party and didn't want to run with Mafdal or, or, uh, or Likud cost the right side of the aisle the election. To this day, I hear people in Israel who were, who were there back in 92 uh, complain bitterly about how dumb these people are. Oh, you, you cost us the election because of that of Oslo and Arafat and Rabin. People complain. Okay. Um, another factor was that those p- parties which were visibly quarreling with each other didn't do well. Those which were unified did very well. The left was unified against under Rabin. Uh, the right was fractured. Even within the Likud, there was tumult underneath Shamir. They thought he was an old man, he's 77 years old, why is he still running? There's some, someone younger should take over. Uh, of course, after, right after he lost, he was ousted from the chairmanship. Uh, and he really was a little bit old for, for, for his moment. Um, but that, that hurt the right side of the aisle. What about the Haredim? How did any of this affect the Haredim? So, the massive influx of Russian Jews cost the Haredim because they got no votes from 400,000 new citizens. No votes, not a single vote. Okay, the Lubavitch, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in one of his last you know, coherent acts, because he, he had a stroke in 92 and then was out of commission for his last two years of life, one of his last decisions of a political nature was to discourage Lubavitch in Israel from supporting the Aguda. And Lubavitch had been the backbone of the Aguda together with the Gerach Hasidim for the longest time. That cost them. They re- now, the Aguda realized that they had to join forces with Degel Torah in order not to go below the threshold. Otherwise, there'd be no Ashkenazic Haredim in the Knesset. So they made the United Torah Judaism, and they got four seats. But it's down from seven. It's a considerable drop-off. For a minor party to go from seven to four, it's a pretty steep decline. Who did reasonably well? Shas. Shas picked up two, a couple of seats. They went up to six. Why did Shas do well? Well, in part because the Likud was seen as abandoning the Sephardim in the development towns in favor of the settlements, but also because uh, Shas did well among Arabs. This is like a little-known secret in Israeli elections. Only about half the Arabs vote for Arab parties. The other half of the Arabs vote for, for Jewish parties. Yes. Well, any, any, I mean, think about it. There, there were only five Arab seats in the Knesset in 1992. Today there are 13. It's a little bit different. But what's the Arab percentage of the population? 20%. So why don't they have like 20 seats or more? The answer is some of them don't vote. But a lot of them vote for Jewish parties for what they, they think is in their best interest. So some voted for Shas. Okay. 
the other uh, the mainstream parties picked up yeah, and and huh from the no just uh, th- that that percentage of the electorate declined in raw numbers there just weren't as many compared to the rest of the population okay now what is the role of the center in the, this whole story well in 1977 Likud won not in a landslide so much as they kept going up incrementally and labor had a tremendous drop-off because the center, the Democratic Movement for Change, the Shinui Party, had 15 seats. Well, what's the fate of center parties in Israel? What usually happens to them? They're here one day and gone the next. They do reasonably well in some elections, but do they accomplish anything? Usually not. Okay, in this election, there was no center party. There was no center party. The center gravitated towards labor, and that gave labor the win. Those who didn't want to vote for a major party ended up voting for either Meretz or Tzomet. If you're, not, if you're not Haredi, and you're not an Arab, you're just a regular Jew, but doesn't want to vote for a major party candidate. So if you're a right-winger, you voted for Tzomet, which was Raful Eitan, or you voted for Meretz. But that basically canceled each other out. In the end, the center gravitated to the left. What about issues of territorial compromise. So labor did a smart thing. Very, very smart thing. They didn't focus on territorial compromise. Everybody knew they were to the left of Likud. That's the way it is. That's the structure of, the, uh, of, of partisan politics in Israel. But they didn't focus on giving away the store. Because they knew that although the public had moved slightly to the left, it hadn't moved that far to the left. Rabin was asked in a TV interview, will you meet with Arafat? And he said, no. Will you have negotiations with the PLO? He says, I hope not. Now, what actually happened? Perez did it behind his back, and then Rabin capitulated, because he wanted an agreement, and the Syrians weren't cooperating, and he had to have something, so he went to the PLO at, at, at Oslo. But in the election campaign, the promises were no PLO, no discussion of a Palestinian state, just autonomy, and you know, uh, a more flexible approach than the Likud was offering. And people liked that. And for that, Rabin won. So isn't it ironic that the Arab contingency in the population uh-huh. voted for the, that party? Not, not, nothing is out of the ordinary there. It, it makes perfect sense for Arab citizens who are voting to vote either their pocketbook or their ideological cause. If it's their pocketbook and they're in development towns or you know, out-of-the-way places, voting for Shas is not such a bad idea. If you're, uh, it's an ideological issue, so vote for labor so that the, or, or merit so that the left-wing government can be established, which will give away the territories to the Arabs. Uh, why vote for an Arab party if they're going to be wor- useless? All right. So that was the, the fate of the 92 Israeli election. How did any of this affect the American elections uh, in 92? Well, after Rabin was um, put into office, he had a meeting with Bush, and Bush gave the loan guarantees. Without extracting too much of a concession from Rabin on matters of settlements. Now, Rabin, anyway, was against the building of settlements in heavily uh, populated Arab areas of the West Bank and Gaza. He was in favor of the building of new settlements in underpopulated areas like the Jordan Valley or in the Jerusalem Corridor, where it would be useful long-term for the State of Israel. But because he was more conciliatory than Shamir ever could have been, so Bush gave the, the, the loan guarantees and the story was over. 
and that uh, episode, that chapter in American Israeli history uh, was closed. But what about Bush? He lost. He lost uh, pretty handily to Clinton, thanks to Ross Perot. Um, Shamir, in retirement, wasn't fully retired. Shamir lost the chairmanship of the Likud party. Netanyahu took over. But they're in the opposition. Shamir remained a Knesset member until his absolute retirement in 96, but he didn't want to give up his Knesset seat right away, uh, right after the 92 election. He loved being a member of Knesset. Even more than being a member, uh, like the Prime Minister, he just loved the act of being a parliamentarian, being a member of Knesset. And it gave him a forum to, to, to speak and to uh, make his opinion heard. Uh, when he was asked what, what, was his, what were his thoughts about Bush Clinton, he said, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. So that was uh, the Israeli reaction to the demise of George Bush Sr. Okay, we'll stop here.